0: Good morning. It is so good to be here with you, good to see each and every person today. So many of you I haven't seen in such a long time, and this is like a, an old reunion to me. And it's just been wonderful thus far, and it's probably going to be that way all day for me. Some of you are visiting from a good distance. You've driven from other states, and we have area congregations represented here. and. So I'm getting all kinds of opportunities to see folks I haven't seen in quite a while, and this is absolutely wonderful, and I am so thrilled to be here. Thank you for the gracious invitation to come and be with you. If you need a copy of the study today, would you raise your hand? If you don't have one of these copies, the brethren are waiting to bring one where you're seated, if you'll keep a hand up, and we'll make sure that everyone gets one who wants it. All right. I don't often speak on parables when I preach, I am uh, one that likes to use a lot of Scripture and, and some of these parables, of course, they are the Scripture, and you are confined to dealing with the contents thereof. And yet today there is a, there's a parable that I want to preach on this morning. And I want to do that because of all the parables in the Bible it displays maybe God's mercy more than any that I know of. And I just feel like hearing about God's mercy today. And I think it would be good and profitable for all of us. I know that many of you have heard the parable of the prodigal son, and you've probably heard many sermons. You that are older certainly have. And yet you, you may not have heard my version, so I'd like to add my thoughts to this wonderful parable. And the first thing I want to do is read it with you. Now the Scripture that is on the front of your chart is enlarged on the back side, so I would urge you to read off the back, it will be a lot easier on the eyes, I think. And we won't have these up on PowerPoint because I don't use PowerPoint. This is my PowerPoint and I, uh, I just never did get accustomed to it. So these are portable PowerPoints, you take these home. Luke 15 verse 11, reading through verse 32. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? Him? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And he said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to the servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing." And he called one of the servants, and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out, and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found." This parable is called by many people the pearl of all the parables. The greatest parable, in other words, that Jesus ever gave. And it's considered a great work of literature by many, many people. One of the great stories ever told. The Lord spoke many things in parables. He had a, a way of adapting his message to the needs of anyone. The Bible says in Mark 4:33 that he spake. As they were able to hear. And when you study the parables of Christ, it is obvious that some of them are really going to have a special appeal to certain classes or individuals of people. Some parables are just that way. The Lord gave a lot of parables about the Kingdom. When you look at His parables about the Kingdom, it is easy to see that certain of those parables are going to appeal to certain individuals depending on their social status, upon their gender, Upon their occupation, upon their class or their station in life. And let me give you some examples of that. If the Lord were speaking a parable on the kingdom, for example, and he wished to make an appeal to, let's say, the farmers that till those Galilean hills, he could say, The kingdom is likened to a man that sowed good seed in his field, and while men slept, an enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. These farmers would really appreciate that message, it was in terms of their occupation. If He were giving a parable about the Kingdom that might really have an appeal to the fishermen that ploughed their trade uh, in the waters of Galilee, He might say the Kingdom is likened to a net let down into the sea and gathered of fishes. These fishermen, though others could understand the parable, it would have special meaning to them, would it not? And if he were giving a parable about the kingdom that might have an appeal, let's say to the merchant men that traveled those dusty roads there in Palestine, he might say the kingdom is likened to a, a man seeking goodly pearls, who when he found one of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. Those merchant men would really appreciate that parable on the kingdom because it was in terms of their, of their occupation if He were speaking a parable about the kingdom that might appeal to the housewives there in Palestine, He might say, The kingdom is like unto leaven, which a woman hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. And those housewives would find that parable especially appealing to them. They made bread continually, and it was in terms of their occupation. But if He would give us a parable that would appeal to all of us, Regarding of, regardless of gender, regardless of our social standing, regardless of our occupation. He might give a parable such as this parable of the prodigal son. And it is not difficult when you think about it to understand why this parable is called the pearl of all the parables, why it reaches and touches our hearts like it does. You see, it deals with the home. And if there's a sentiment that's common to humanity, it's a sentiment that deals with homes. All of you have had a home. Now, some of you have had a better home than others. But you that are older, think back on your homes. Think of a loving mother and think of that that hardworking father with calloused hands. Think of some of the old memories there with your brothers or sisters or both. Think of the times maybe during holidays when the family was together. Think of all those special memories that have to do with your home. And when you go back in your mind and you start thinking about childhood days, carefree days, when you played and when mother would lovingly take care of you. Think about times of sickness when mother's tender hands there helped you through that time of illness as a child. And all of the times that she talked to you, and held you, and dried your eyes. And and then think of that father, you know, and those whippings that you took at times, and yet how much he loved you, and how hard he worked to provide for that family. There are just so many memories that can flood our minds about the home. And there's no sentiment like it, and it's common to all of us. And this story has that sentiment, because it it has a tender, loving father. It has a wayward son who got himself in trouble and his life messed up and almost ruined, and yet who finally came to himself and wandered back home to cast himself upon the mercy of a loving father. It has an elder brother in it who is unforgiving and unmerciful, and he's part of the plot as well. And it's all woven together and told by our Lord Jesus in such a beautiful fashion. I want to study that with us today, and there are several details out of it. Now the word parable means a placing beside, a placing beside, if you will just remember that. When the Lord would give a parable, He would tell a story in which He would place beside characters and events and details in the story, place them beside truths that He wanted to teach. In other words, the characters in His parable, or the details in His parable, would illustrate truths that He was trying to teach to the people. And it was a a, a great way to teach for those who really hungered and thirsted for the Word, and who wanted the truth. It was obscure and hidden from those who would not investigate and think about the parables. But they were meant to impart to those that wanted it. And... In the parable before us we have three characters, three main characters that represent things, and there are multiple details given in the story that are all representative of different things. There is about fourteen things in this parable now that I want us to consider, and I want us to dig deep into the parable this morning, take our time, and let's study thoroughly this old story that so many of us love, and we have heard so much taught in our pulpits. We have a loving Father in this story, and I don't know of anyone who's thoughtfully considered His role and what He means, who does not believe that He represents our Heavenly Father, God. I have heard of some who do not believe that the Father in this story represents God. I don't see how they can hold that view. He unquestionably represents our Heavenly Father, God. But there has been a lot of dispute about the two sons who they represent. Some have said that this elder son represents Jesus, and the younger son represents Adam. I do not believe that, but that has been a theory that has been espoused. Jesus and Adam, they say, are represented by the two boys. Well, first of all, Jesus and Adam were not sons of God in the same sense. Jesus is the Son of God in an exclusive sense, in that God was literally His Father, that He brought about that uh, pregnancy in the womb that ultimately resulted in Jesus being born there of Mary in Bethlehem. And so He has God for a father in an exclusive sense that no one else does. Adam, created from dust, and nostrils breathed into it the breath of life, had a different kind of origin than what Jesus did. He is the Son of God in an exclusive sense. Secondly, if the elder son represents Jesus, think about it, it will represent Jesus as being angry because His younger brother returned home to the Father. That's not even an accurate picture of Jesus, see. And so I don't believe the Lord had in mind teaching to us about Jesus and Adam and these two boys. Others have said, Well, the two sons represent Jews and Gentiles. Now this theory is interesting, because it is true that like the elder brother, the Jews remained at the Father's house all during the time the Law of Moses was in force, while us Gentiles, like the younger son. We are off in a far country of paganism and idolatry. So that is an interesting theory. I do not believe, however, that that is what the Lord intended to teach. I do not think He's teaching us about Jews and Gentiles using these two sons. You know, there are three parables in Luke 15. We have only read one of them. And I had you start reading with me at verse 11, but we did not read the first ten verses. Let us go back to verse 1. You'll find them on the back as well as the front, but if you want the larger print, it's on the back side. Verse 1 and 2, Luke says of Christ, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the scribes and Pharisees murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. I want you to notice who drew near to Christ when he was here on earth. Look who found him attractive look who came to Jesus! Publicans! Who are these men? Who are publicans? They are actually Jews, but they work for Rome. They are tax collectors on behalf of Rome, and they are collecting taxes from their own brethren, from among the Jews. And not only collecting taxes, but many of them extorted, many of them stole from their own countrymen by charging fees far and above what Rome demanded in taxes. And when they fulfilled the requirements that Rome wanted in, in regard to taxes, they lined their pockets with the excess that they had stolen and extorted off their own countrymen. And they were despised by other Jews, held them in contempt, and yet they followed Jesus. They came to Him and found Him very attractive. Publicans, and then the Bible says that sinners surrounded Him. Think of this, Jesus was approached and surrounded many times by prostitutes, by drunkards, by thieves, by all kinds of vile human beings who were greatly attracted to Christ because they saw something in Jesus they didn't see in other religious leaders. They saw somebody genuine, somebody sincere, somebody without hypocrisy. They, sa- they saw a man of mercy and compassion upon the poor and upon the sick, as He healed folks and did all kinds of mighty miracles. And they saw how He consorted even with the poorest among people, that Jesus didn't confine His associations to those of wealth and power, but freely moved about among the poorest of the classes and had mercy and compassion upon all. They saw a man that Did mighty miracles like they'd never seen before anywhere. Walking on water, taking bread, multiplying it, and feeding thousands, opening the eyes of folks born blind, raising the dead. They saw a different person in Jesus. They found him attractive. They saw in Christ a man that spoke like nobody else spoke. The Bible says in Matthew 7, when he finished the Sermon on the Mount, Around verse 28, that when he had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. This man spake different. Remember the time that his enemies sent out soldiers to arrest him? And the soldiers, when they came back empty handed, they said, Why have you not brought him? Where is he? And they said to their their rulers that sent them, never a man spake as this man spake. They couldn't even arrest Christ. They'd never heard anybody speak with the authority that Jesus spoke. And so he was approachable in ways that no other religious leaders were. And they saw in him something much different than they saw in the scribes and Pharisees. And so, then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the scribes and Pharisees murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners, and eateth with them. And I suppose their charge is against Christ here, that if this man really were the Christ, if he were the Son of God, if this man were who he says he is, if he's a teacher from God, he would not be associating with riffraff like this. He would not allow these people, these publicans and sinners near him. He would not let them touch him. He wouldn't have any association with them whatsoever. And that was their their feelings about Christ. So the Lord began to give them parables. And if we'll think about it in Luke 15, a lot of the parables in this chapter are given for the benefit of these publicans and sinners. He's talking to them. And watch him as he starts now in verse 3. And let's read his first parable, verse 3 to 7. He spake this parable unto them unto the publicans and sinners, see, He spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost, until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Friends, these evil scribes and Pharisees could understand that if a man had a hundred sheep and he lost one of them, he would leave the ninety and nine right there and go out into the wilderness looking for that sheep. And when he found it, he would carefully lay that little thing across his shoulders and come bearing it back. And when he got back, it would be a great occasion of rejoicing. He would call folks together. Rejoice with me, he would say, for I found my sheep which was lost. And he would restore that to the fold. But now these evil scribes and Pharisees are watching the same thing. They're seeing the great shepherd of the sheep of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, restore lost people to the fold of God. And instead of rejoicing, what are they doing? They're complaining and they're murmuring and they're saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And the Lord is trying to impress upon them they would rejoice over a sheep, but they can't rejoice over the lost sheep of Israel. What a shame. Then He gives them the second parable, verses 8 to 10. Read it with me. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle, and sweep the house, and seek diligently until she find it? And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Now these evil scribes and Pharisees could understand that here's a woman, if she had ten coins, maybe coins that bore the image and superscription of Caesar, and she lost one of those coins. She would light her candle and sweep her house and search diligently till she found that lost coin. They could understand and appreciate. How that would be a great occasion to rejoice. But now here is Jesus finding lost souls, not souls stamped in the image of Caesar, souls stamped in the image of Almighty God. And now that He's finding these lost souls and restoring them, instead of rejoicing like the angels in heaven, they are murmuring and criticizing Christ and saying, This man receives sinners, and eats with them. No, in this parable, the two sons don't represent Jesus and Adam. They do not represent Jew and Gentile. The prodigal son represents these publicans and sinners that are being restored to a right relationship with God. And the elder brother represents the scribes and Pharisees, that are murmuring and complaining at the work that Jesus is doing. That's who the two sons are representing, scribes and Pharisees, publicans and sinners. And that's why He gives these three parables in this chapter. And a great emphasis, I'm afraid, is placed upon the elder brother, as much so as the prodigal son. And sometimes we fail to see that great point in in all of this teaching, that He really wants to make correction for the sake of these scribes and Pharisees. You know, when you look at the elder son in this story, it's and we'll look at the prodigal in a minute, it's an ugly picture you get. The father has received the younger son back safe and sound. He has forgiven him. And they're feasting up at the mansion. They've killed the fatted calf and there's dancing and music going on. And this elder son, Returns from the field. When he gets near the house, he hears the music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked him what all that meant. He said, Well, your brother's come back. Your father's killed the fatted calf because he's received him safe and sound. The Bible says of this elder son that he was angry, that he would not go in, and that his father actually had to come out and entreat him. What's he angry about? Angry because his old father's sad heart is now glad? Angry because his own brother's come back and he's been received by the Father? What's he angry about? And so the Father actually has to come out and talk to him. Now, if you'll look on the front with me there, in verse 29, this this uh elder brother really begins to reveal himself. Verse 29, I put a box down in the bottom right corner for you, and it's got that verse in it, and I put some words in red for you. They are pronouns. There are five of them. I want you to look at this statement now in verse 29. When his father came out entreating him, the Bible says that, He answering, said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Five times he has referred to himself in this verse. Look at the pronouns there. These many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. Yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. You see, he's completely self-righteous, absorbed with himself. No compassion upon the brother, no love for his brother, though he's been restored. Completely unwilling to forgive and will not go back to the father's house, will not even enter. So much so that the father had to come and treat him. And Jesus is talking about these scribes and Pharisees and their actions. And He's saying to them in this story, I want you to look at this elder brother. Just look, look at him very closely because in him and his actions you see a reflection of yourselves because you're so unwilling to forgive. You know, God forgives sinners. And He cleans up the vilest of people and uses them. And we sometimes forget that. If you will think back at some of the characters in the Bible, let me mention one in particular. How about David? What did David do? David committed adultery, and then he had Bathsheba's husband killed, trying to cover up his sin. He committed adultery and murder. What did God do about it? He sent Nathan the prophet to him, and Nathan told him of his sin, and David confessed and declared that he had sinned. And Nathan told David, The Lord has put away your sin. You will not die. And David kept his kingship, And whenever you read the book of Psalms, and many of you love the Psalms, we all do, they are written by a man who was guilty of adultery and murder. How many of you would let somebody in your pulpits today who had committed adultery and murder and let him speak to you? David wrote scripture thereafter. Because God cleaned him up and used this man. And I'm not sanctioning sin. I'm telling you, God cleans up sinners. And if you're in sin today, God can clean you up and use you mightily, just like He did David. And He's trying to teach these elder brethren this lesson. This elder brother, these scribes and Pharisees that yes, I'm receiving sinners because I'm restoring them and they're being forgiven and they're taking their place in the kingdom of God and being of service to their father. There are great lessons in this story about that. I hope that none of us today can look at the elder brother and see a picture of ourselves in any way. God help us. God help us. When one of us strays and he comes back to the Lord, and he genuinely repents and God forgives him that we forgive him. And that this sin is not brought up again. Notice how the elder brother delighted in bringing up the sins of his brother. He said, Father, he's devoured your living with harlots. Father, he's taken the money you gave him and he's gone over here and spent it on prostitutes. And he keeps bringing that sin up. The father's forgiven that sin. It wasn't the money of the elder brother, it was the father's money. And if the father had forgiven, surely the elder brother should as well, but he didn't. And so let's don't let's don't look at the elder brother in this story ever and see a picture of us. And I'm not accusing anyone here of being that way. I'm just saying let's don't be that way. God help us to be merciful and to forgive him. And when you read this parable now, every time you read about the elder brother, Think about this lesson, because that's what He's trying to teach the scribes and Pharisees, and thereby keep us from making the mistake of unforgiveness that they made in their life. Let's talk a little bit now about the prodigal son himself. What a beautiful story. The Bible says in verse 12 that this younger son came to his father one day, and he asked for the portion of goods that would fall to Him. The Bible says the Father divided unto them is living. Some people have condemned the Father for doing that. They've said, you know what, that Father made a mistake. He shouldn't have given that younger son that money, but He should have made him stay there at the house. But we've got to understand something here. The Father in this story represents God. God doesn't compel people to serve Him. The younger son has free will, and so the father divides unto him that living and allows him to take his free will and, and do with that as he desires. We read that not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. I would imagine, wouldn't you, that he's already in that far country before he came to his father. You see, He's heard about this place. He's heard about a place that's a long ways off where He's not known. And that if a person can get a little bit of money, they can go over there and purchase and buy anything they want. Anything that will satisfy their flesh is for sale in that place. And you can have a whale of a time over there in that far country. You see, He's already thinking about that when He comes to His Father. When he asks for the portion of goods, that's where he really desires to be. He's tired of the restrictions of his father's house. He's tired of his laws. He's tired of living that kind of life. He thinks it'll be a lot more fun out over there in the far country. And when a man gets in the far country and is thinking, listen, it's not very long till he's in that country and is living. And that's what happened to this boy. The far country here represents the land of sin. And a person's never farther from God than when they're in sin. The Bible says that he took his journey. I think that's an interesting term. You know, we don't become exceedingly righteous overnight, it's a growth, it's a journey. Neither do people usually get exceedingly bad overnight. That too is a journey. He took his journey. Geographically, we don't know what country he entered. Parabolically, it represents the land of sin. And I've said a person's never further from God than when they're in sin. That's the far country. Notice next there that he wasted his substance with riotous living. It doesn't say he invested his substance, there wasn't nothing worth investing in over there. He wasted his substance, and that's telling you and I in the parable. That as long as we're in sin, we're wasting our substance. If you're in sin today, you're wasting everything. You're wasting your time. Time is really short here on earth. You're wasting that time. You're wasting your money. You're wasting your influence. You're wasting your eternal future. Sin is a waste. And this boy's wasted his substance with riotous living. The Bible next says that when He had spoke, when He had had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and He began to be in want. There is no famine back at the Father's house. The famine is in that land. There is always a famine, folks, in the land of sin, because you and I were created for one thing, to have a relationship with our Creator, a righteous relationship with God. That is why we were made. And we've got this longing inside of us for that. That's put there, I believe, by God when He made us. And nothing out here in the world ever fills it, does it? You can have a lot of money. You can have pleasure. You can engage in a lot of things. But there's a deep longing within each of us to not have guilt, to have that removed, to be right with God. And to have a deep relationship with Him, and sin, sin ruins that, that opportunity for that. And when a person's in sin, they don't have that longing fulfilled. There's a famine of those things that the soul really desperately needs. This should have been enough to drive the boy back home, but it didn't. He, uh, he decides to pull himself up by the bootstraps, as we say. He went and joined Himself to a citizen of that country. And He sent him into His fields to feed swine. And this is a picture of the degrading consequences of sin. There aren't any promotions in it. They're all demotions. And instead of going back home, now He gets to feed the pigs of a stranger, of a foreigner, and He doesn't even own the herd. That is just really crazy, isn't it? And I will talk about that in just a moment. Why would people rather feed the devil's swine when they can be a servant back at the Father's house and be a son or daughter and have all of those blessings? Why do folks stay out here in the pig pen of the world feeding the devil's pigs? Why Why do they act like this boy did? Jesus will tell us in just a minute. He will tell us why this boy did that and why all sinners are doing it. He will tell us exactly what is going on in their thinking. But did you notice that he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. He sent him into the fields to feed swine. The Bible says next that he fain would have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. Nobody helped this man. Nobody has got respect for him. And you'll find that a lot of times in the world, won't you? When people get in difficulties out in the world, what happens to them? If they're having troubles, do they run to the local bartender? Is he the one that can bail them out? When they have a loved one die, who do they come to? They come to the church. When folks out in the world have problems, they come to religious people. Because they they understand, I can get something there I can't get from others. And you see, His citizens have no compassion on Him. The Bible says, No man gave unto Him. While He could buy drinks at the bar, everybody will love Him. But now that He's out of money, you see, He has no friends anymore. That's the way the world does, folks. But the church is there to help, isn't it? And finally now, we begin to understand what His his problem is here and why He's acting like He is. I want you to notice verse 17. Jesus tells you the secret right here. The Bible says of this younger son, When he came to himself. What does that tell you? When he came to himself. It tells you that he's been beside himself, that he's not thinking clearly. And you know, really, he has, uh, when you think about it, he has paid too much. And he's gotten too little for it. There's two kinds of insanity. There's a mental insanity and a moral insanity. A person can be mentally insane and not be responsible for it. I have a younger brother, he's a half-brother. Mom died when I was nine, Dad remarried, and he's the, he's the half-brother, he's the step-brother produced from that marriage. He's some fourteen years younger than me. And he was a hard-working young man with a family, worked two jobs. But he developed a, a mental problem called being bipolar. And whereas Neo was always friendly and outgoing, and had friends of all kinds, he soon became an angry young man, and when you met him, you never know, knew which, which one you would meet. He would be Jekyll or Hyde, depending upon his mental condition, and he couldn't control it and couldn't help it. And whereas he worked two jobs at one time, he got to where he couldn't even change tire on his pickup. And he's been on welfare for years because he's not able to work. And he's lost his family. And this condition is something that he simply can't help. And folks like this need our compassion. That's who needs welfare. That's who needs the help of others around them. And sometimes when we have these mental issues, we're just not responsible. We ought to be compassionate toward people that have these kind of problems. But there is a moral insanity, and when a person is morally insane, they are responsibly insane. And that's what's wrong with this boy in the story. He's morally insane, he's beside himself. In other words, he's not thinking right. Look at what he's done. He's taken the wealth that his father gave him, traded it off now, and what's he got? He spent all of it, giving it away, and he gets the privilege of feeding another man's pigs, and he doesn't even own the herd. Folks, if I had a piece of property worth a million dollars and I sold it for a dollar, what would you think of me? You'd say, Pat's crazy. Took a million dollar piece of property and sold it for a dollar. That's what this boy's done. He's taken his sonship, his privileges at the father's house all of the wealth and blessings that are there, and traded it for a pig pen in a far country. And the privilege of feeding those pigs. And the Bible says he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. You see, he's hit the bottom of the barrel. He is morally insane. And Jesus said in verse 17 when He came to Himself. And listen to me now, when a sinner comes to himself, he comes to God. I want you to remember that. When you come to yourself, you'll come to God. And if you haven't come to God yet, and you're still in sin, you haven't come to yourself. And I'm not trying to insult you, I'm trying to help you. You're not thinking clearly. You're not looking at the future. You are not looking down the road at the long picture of life and where it is going to end for you. And that e- eternity, either in heaven or in hell, you are not looking down the road. You are not thinking clearly. This boy came to himself, and when he did, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. I want you to look at the picture there in the upper right on the front, and look right below the picture, and you will see those two verses. You will see the statement of the boy, and I put some of it in red because I want you to notice that. He said, I will arise, go to my father, will say unto him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Now that is what he was going to tell his father. I want you to get a picture of this elder son, or excuse me, the younger son. You know, he's lived a life of sin, I do not know how long. But I would imagine his clothing is all tattered. He may well be barefoot, shoes worn out, and you can just picture Him sometimes when you see somebody that's led a rough life. You've seen old furrowed cheeks, haven't you? A leather-looking face where people have lived a hard life. And it's furrowed their, their face deeply. And maybe He's in such a condition, but try to picture Him as He takes a last look at that old herd of swine that He's been feeding. He wraps that... Tattered clothes hoed around him, and looking at those swine one last time, he starts back now to the father. He's going home now. He heads down the road. I will arise, he said, and go to my father. Now let's turn our thoughts for a moment to the father in this story. We haven't said much about him. He's had a vacancy at his table, a vacant chair and sometimes you know things are worse than death that that chair's been vacated a long time not by death but by sometimes something worse and that's losing a child to sin his boy's been gone and no telling how he's how he's looked for him daily and now that boy started home and Christ said that He arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. I doubt the old man ever quit looking down that road. And one day, here comes somebody approaching in the distance. Maybe he shades his eyes, I don't know. But at last it dawns on him the familiar stride of his own son, and he thinks to himself, it's my boy coming. What does the father do in this story? Does he go back to the mansion and tell the servants, All right, let's, let's put the windows down now and bolt the doors. I see that scalawag finally coming home. And he's not coming in this house till he gets down and begs and pleads with me. And maybe I'll let him in. What did the father do according to Christ? When he was yet a great way off, he saw him. The Bible says, He ran and had compassion and fell on His neck and kissed Him. Did you notice the Father ran to meet Him? You know, when you read about God, and that Father represents God, when you read about God in your Bible, you don't read about God ever being in a hurry much, do you? God moves very slowly. Peter said that he's long-suffering to us. He said that, once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, it was a hundred, hundred and twenty years before God brought the flood on the earth. God's very slow to move, slow to anger, slow to execute his wrath. And the only time in the Bible I've noticed God being in a hurry is when he's running to meet a returning sinner. The Bible says he ran to meet him. He couldn't wait to get to the boy. He didn't bolt the doors and windows. He ran to meet him when he was yet a great way off. And he fell on his neck and he kissed him. And I'm told the word kiss there is in the the imperfect tense, which is a tense of repeated action in past time. And what that literally means is that he kissed him, that he kissed him, that he kept on kissing him. And I want you to picture that scene when that old father and son fell into each other's arms, and he felt those warm tears of repentance upon his aged cheek. And he kissed this son over and over and over again. He kept on kissing him. That's the scene Jesus wants to picture for us. And then the boy starts his confession to the father. Would you drop down toward the bottom right? you'll see a larger box, verse 21 to 23 in it. Now remember verse 18 and 19 under the picture above. And look at this box now with Luke 15, 21 to 23 in this read. The son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Now back in verse 19, he was going to say here, make me as one of your hired servants. But the father wouldn't let him. No, he interrupted him, and before He can say to him, Make me a hired servant, the father said to the servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring it of the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. The Father would not let him make that confession, or that statement, make me as one of thy hired servants. Because, friends, this boy was not coming back as a hired servant. He was coming back as a son. He would come back and take the place that he had before. He's not going to relegate him to be a hired servant. God doesn't demote His children. And what I want you to know, if you are in sin today, God will take you in and He's not going to demote you down to nothing. He does not do that, and He would not let this boy just become a hired servant. What did He say? He said to the servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. I am told that in in those days wealthy people had a garment they called the best robe. They never wore it themselves. But when they were were privileged to have a visit from a king, from a prince, from somebody of nobility, they broke out the best robe and they put it on that honored guest. And when he told the servants, bring the best robe and put it on him, he's saying to his servants, give this boy a royal welcome, treat him like a king, because he, he saved the best robe for the boy. Next he said, put a ring on his finger. What does that mean? A ring in the ancient days was a symbol of authority. If you recall Joseph, when he was sold into slavery in Egypt, and when they put him in prison, when Pharaoh lifted him out, what did he do? He gave Joseph his ring. And Joseph then had great authority. It was a symbol of his authority. If anybody thereafter questioned Joseph's right about Egypt, all he had to do was show Pharaoh's ring. When you read the book of Esther, there's a villain in that book by the name of Haman. And Haman, of course, had uh, had tricked the king. The king Ahasuerus had deceived him, and he'd gotten the king's ring. And that ring had his signet on it, and enabled him to make laws and stamp them with the king's ring and seal them as legitimate. AND IT GAVE HIM GREAT AUTHORITY TO DO GREAT DESTRUCTION TO THE JEWS THROUGHOUT THE KINGDOM OF PERSIA, RULED BY HASHIARUS. BUT IF YOU FOLLOW THE STORY IN THE BOOK WITH ESTHER AND HER UNCLE Mordecai, Mordecai, THE JEW, FINALLY WOUND UP WITH THAT RING. AND WHEN HE DID, HE COULD ENACT LAWS, AND HE HAD AUTHORITY IN PERSIA THAT COUNTERACTED THE, the LAWS THAT Haman HAD MADE TO EXTERMINATE ALL THE JEWS IN THE WORLD ON A GIVEN DAY. And he and Esther together saved the life of those Jews. It's a beautiful story, but it involves that ring. And so he's telling these servants, give this boy a ring, put a ring on his finger. If anybody then questioned, this boy's right about the father's house, all he had to do was show him a ring. The father said, next, put some shoes on his feet. And that implies two things, either that he... He had worn out shoes or he came home barefooted. Likely he was barefoot. And in those days only two kinds of people went barefooted. Those that were extremely poor in poverty. And those that were in a deep, deep uh, sense of mourning in their life and grief. If you recall the story of David, when his son Absalom stole his kingdom, David had to flee Jerusalem. The Bible says that when he crossed the brook and started up the slope of the Mount of Olives, David's head was covered and his feet were bare. Now, why is David barefooted? He is the king. He is in a great sense of mourning because his own sons rebelled against him and stole his kingdom. And now this boy's come home and he's told the servants, put shoes on his feet. And what he's saying by that is, the day of poverty is over the day of mourning has ended, put shoes on his feet, bring forth the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they had a great feast. And my sinner friend, this morning, if you are here in sin, the banquet table of God's grace is spread for you today. If you will leave the far country of sin and come to the Father's house, He will give you that royal welcome. And He will forgive a wasted life and wasted, wasted substance, wasted future. He'll forgive you of everything you've ever done. This returning prodigal son and his reception is a parabolical representation of the reception awaiting anyone that'll leave sin and come to their father's house. And at this moment, I want us to rise together and sing the invitation song. Lord, I'm coming home. And if you need to come to your father today, would you come now? while we rise and sing.